thank you. Last week was um, just really terrific for me, and like really in terms of outlining the project. I uh, really started thinking about more about the class this week and realized that this um, before I wrote the um, before I wrote the book, it was actually published. Before I read uh, Alan Brill many years ago, uh, told me you know said said to Alan he's a great editor. He said Alan what a book should look like, and this is not and the book that came out is not the book that he thought I should come out with correctly. And like one of the things he said like you should find like you know basic principles and then show how to illustrate them. Through it, right through a number of things. So I was realized as I was preparing this, like, wow, this really is a basic principle that matters to me in a whole lot of areas, and you could really illustrate lots of things about halacha by doing this. And how many other principles do I have like it? It's a really interesting question. I think right now I have two for sure. I have this, and I have the notion that you have um, that halacha recognizes a right to live what I call a normal life, and there's certain sort of impositions that um, halacha halacha won't make those impositions on you. And the model for that, maybe we'll make that another a, a different part of the series. Rav Lichtenstein, um, used to, when, when he did Bavakama, right? So we're even then in Dafyomi version, right? So uh, Rav Lichtenstein said, "Look, it seems like most of the damage in the ancient, right, in the rabbinic world was caused by oxen. So why don't we ban oxen? Because they're useful, right? But." Okay, right, so the, so we could claim that there's a societal benefit overall, and we have and we have the indivi- we have the individuals bear the costs of it. But Wilkinson didn't frame it that way. Well, but the question is also is can you deduce from the Gemara what percentage of oxen caused problems? Right, we could also claim that it was a false supposition, right? What percentage of oxen that maybe there are lots of oxen, and so oxen cause problems, but it, right, but. Maybe the percentage of oxen who cause problems is lower than the percentage of any of any animal that could do the same work, or something like that. Right? We could all sorts of ways we could do it. Milton didn't do that either. Uh, what he argued, but you know, and you can argue, you can decide whether it's the right framing for that was that having an ox was just like part of what life was, right? You, you know, you like having an ox, like you know, that's how you moved up in society. You had an ox, and to ban you from having an ox would be to say that you know, from Jews couldn't live what was considered to be a normal human life. Um, and that was like a really interesting idea to me. That, that, um, and I'll, so I'll, you know, I'll, I'll foreshadow. And I think that there are, um, there, there are a couple of areas, two, two, two just to foreshadow, we can work out the details later, and then we'll go back to this. Uh, one is in the context of Hilchot Nida, uh, the question of whether there are circumstances where you can resolve a halachic problem in one of two ways. You can be matir or durabanan, uh, or you can force people to undergo hormonal treatments. Uh, so I argued that we don't force people to undergo hormonal treatments because that's an imposition that we just see it like we see it like we don't see that something halacha can do. Uh, right when we have it within halacha, within halacha alternative, the model of which that is taken from is um, is uh, whether we force people to take IVs, anim kipper, rather than drink. And this is really interesting. Apparent consensus, though there are always every once in a while there are stories in the in the Jewish press about various rooms set up with uh, private IVs on Yom Kippur and right in some in some from communities. But the consensus of Poskin um, remains, so far as I can tell, absolute that even if somebody knows perfectly well that they will have to drink on right on Yom Kippur and they could avoid having to drink by setting up an IV, they don't have to. So why not? Uh, right, so that's interesting. Right, so that's another interesting notion that would be okay. So now getting back to our principle, I want to, I'm going to, you know, to some extent redo, um, redo the last class, try and take us a little bit deeper. But I want to also try and um, 
and get your reactions to and to push me on it. So what do you think of the whole project of thinking about um, thinking about how we decide halacha on the basis of broad principles that whose framing I'm explicit about is not halacha, right? It's not, they're not, I'm not deriving the abstraction purely from the halachic data, right? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm taking external philosophic, an external philosophic notion, I'm using Kant um, to be specific, and thinking about halacha to the extent, right, that, you know, that I have a very, very strong bias, maybe an absolute bias, I would say probably not an absolute bias, but a very, very strong bias, as close to absolute as you can get. And I'll talk about that in a certain sense from a different discipline in a minute. Um, so what do you think of that whole project of, um, of having a, um, having abstract ethical tests for, all right, for halacha? Um, Pardon? Abstract ethical tests. Tests, right? No, that's right. Is this halacha or not? Well, the answer is it's halacha if it meets this, if it meets this test, right? This test of this ethical standard I'm setting up, and it's not right, and, and it, it is, and it is halacha if it fits, and if it's not, and if it doesn't fit, then there's a very, very strong bias against believing that that, that, that could be the halacha. Well, um, I don't know because in this, I, I wasn't able to the whole shit of that, but. Uh, that's presuming that there is these abstract concepts are so universal that they're and that they are um, implicitly or inherently, you know, a framework within which halakha, you know. Right. So here I'm trying to right. Halakha, you know, was presumed to have developed. So here I tried to make the argument last time, right, that the, that the principle I'm dealing with this time, right, which I might not be able to make about other principles, but it might be once I establish it as, as okay with this principle internally, I can do other things, was that the idea of whose blood is redder is in the Gemara, and in the Gemara as something that you have to understand before you make a drushan. Because the analogy between, between Shrikhut Damim and Gilead Rayot is only meaningful once you have Shrikhut Damim, and Shrikhut Damim is derived by Svar. So this is why, this is always my... Um, my lead thing to students to try, you know, when students always, students always, you know, particularly if they're educated like me, I guess, right? So one of the, uh, one of the things that a certain issue that they teach you over and over again, right, is that we pass in low and Tamadik Now we take, we're supposed to take the Rai Salach as a black box and we just, um, and we just apply it mechanically. So, you know, I respond by saying, look, you know, but that may be very nice that you think that, but the Beis Yosef Paskins are Shinan Tamadik so does the Rambam. Uh, so, right, so this is just wrong internally in Halakha. But uh, right, but then people it's like it makes people uncomfortable to um, right to sit in judgment on the process in advance. That's why I say, well, you can't learn Torah without it, and yet it still makes people uncomfortable. Yes, David, what do you want to say? You also have to define the framework. Uh, last week, when you get into the differentiation between things that apply to Jews and non-Jews, where if you're looking at a whole thing, it seems to be more one side of it. There's certain things where they're excluded, and where you draw the ethical lines and things like that. Yes, I think that right. So what I so let, let me let me try, let me try and make the case. Uh, interest in things like that. Yeah, right. So let's let's try and um, 
what I argued last time, right? Now this is, right, is what I tried to do, but to be fair last time, was to say, look, I'm deriving everything from this line, my chazir de dami alternatively, mi yemar de dami whichever gears you want, if you can find a difference between them, you know, more requisite to hate. But there are lots of things that explicitly seem to contradict it in halacha. Uh, right there, right. I gave three three parade examples: the whole law of Rodef, the mission in Hurios that suggests that there's a priority among lives, and the you know, and the easiest example is Rabbi Kiva saying Um So then, right. So, right. So how can we, you know, so we have a fundamental problem. How can we claim that this is a test against which everything has to be evaluated when there are things that obviously can't be squared with it? Right, that's the right. By the way, that's not really my problem because the Gemara claims that there's a svara. <laughs> right? How could the, how could the Gemara make us claim there's a svara when it's against the, the Akiva comes from a drasha? The chayachichimah, chayachakodmin. Right? So how can we say today? And I wanted to argue, like, actually, like you know, that the the way the Gemara frames it, the formulation we have of the svara is Amaraic, where the Akiva is Tanitic, so they knew full well, right, that there was a drasha of Akiva that said chayachakodmin, and still they said this is svara. Right, that's right. So I have a defense of it that the Gemara did the same thing, and a problem <laughs> that it seems beferish against beferish sources. Um, and then there's a uh, right. So then we talked about how you know the the, um, the how we understand that line, right? Because we could just dismiss the line, my chazit, and say that's just you know, that's just uh, the equivalent of the way some people say the Rambam quotes Pesukim because they're he doesn't write. Ram often quotes the wrong pasuk based on the Gemara. It seems so. Some people, you know, some people go to town trying to figure out how the Ram read the Gemara. So this is really the pasuk, which is the, right, which is the source. And other people, uh, and other people say, no, the Ram that just quotes sukim that are, that work popularly, they're not actually the source. So we could say also that my is something that Rabbah or Rabbah said to the person who asked him the Shaila because it was a way of explaining it to them. But really, what he meant was, if you work at all the mechanics of halacha, right? That's really what uh, that's really what comes out. So we could do that. Um, we could do that. So that's one. So that's a problem that maybe I'm putting too much weight on the svara. And the second question is: Do we think that the um, do we think that the reasoning process of halacha has to follow? The, um, the svara at all stages. Like, you can't make an argument that is opposed to the svara if I take an extreme version, or we just think that the outcomes have to match the svara, not right, even if the arguments don't. Because maybe halacha is a very complicated system with many, many moving parts. And at the end of the moving parts, we say, look, okay, that's the way the moving parts work, but that doesn't work with the svara. That's, and it could be that the svara plays one role in the context of halacha and another role as an ethical standard. Like we, might, right, we might be able to say, okay, look, there's an exception to this for halachically, as long as the exception, right, that, that it happens that this is an enormously rich um, <coughs> vein for formal halachic thinking. There's an enormous amount of formal halachic thinking about the way in which my chazit plays out, because everyone knows this is for everyone knows that there are outcomes that you would not reach if you just had this for that are true in halacha, uh, right? And everyone also knows that the svara leaves space for many kinds of questions, like what happens if there's a choice in one life and two, 
So I know why my blood is better than yours. Because there's more of it. But almost everyone thinks that halacha does not permit killing one person to save two. How can that be? Right? How can you how can you get if the source of you can't kill to save a life is my chazid? How does that get you, right? Why can't I kill one person to save two? So we could give you, right, if we're in a mathematical universe, we say, oh, because all infinite all lives are infinite, right? So all infinites are equivalent. No, not all infinite, right? Then we get right, the whole, whole conversation of whether all whether what, right, whether whether twice infinity is greater than infinity or not. Uh, right. So there's there's a enormously rich literature about it, much of which involves separating the svara from the halacha and right and claiming that the svara applies. You know, the svara has a role that is separate from the formal halacha that you cannot commit murder to save a life. Uh, right? Like one way of framing it is that the svara establishes the law, and then the law goes on its own. And then the question is, does that mean the svara no longer plays a life? So you know, if we're doing the technical halacha, we'll find that almost everybody says, even though the svara establishes the law, and the law then goes on its own, but the svara still has purposes on its own, even when it's not right, other than establishing the law. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe when you're extending the boundary of the law, you have to start with your default position is inconsistent with the svara, and then take it from there. Okay, right. So let's see if we can do that. Right. That's a uh, right. That's a right. That's a great question. I mean, you know, it's boundaries is it right? Um, right. Those are okay. Then we talked about um, one other kind of question, which is even reading the Gemara. Right. I could say my chazid I can say is. That's the, that's the threshold question you have to answer, but it's answerable. All right, what have you seen? Well, this. Right, easy example. Well, guess what? I'm Jewish. Right, that's, the easiest, that's the easiest kind of answer. And that answer can be rooted halachically because, there is, right, because killing, right, killing a Jew is ritzicha and killing a non-Jewish vichut damim. Well, you could say that, right? Other people, not everybody uses my terminology. I think that the Ramam is fairly consistent that way, um, right? And we could frame it, you know, more technically, Resicha comes from a Pasuk which says, Kiyazid ish al re'ehu, right? So it implies, right? Whereas, Shvichut damim comes from Pesach Shofech dam ha'adam, right? So there's a re'ah and there's an adam, right? We can do it that way. We can say, okay, so ask me why I think that my blood is redder, right? I think my blood is redder because, right? Because Halakha teaches me that my blood is redder. And therefore, confronted the choice, right? Therefore, a Jew would be able to kill a non-Jew to save, right, to save their own life. I think you can learn an enormous amount about people's attitudes towards halacha by how, by whether they're willing to entertain that possibility or not. Uh, I think you can learn an enormous amount. Right? Some, right, for some poskim will say okay, and some poskim will say no. Obviously, that is a violation of the principle. You can't do that. Uh, and other poskim will say that makes a lot of sense, and of course, right? And then find a way that it's not true anyway. <laughs> uh, they feel like, what do you know? Are they what are they really doing, right? If they right if they right if their argument plays out now, if I'm thinking philosophically, right? So now I have to say, what do I do? <coughs> right, so let's suppose I say that I'm not I'm not willing to allow distinction between Jews and non-Jews to play a role in my chazik. In my right, right. I'm not willing. To, right, I'm. You know, my chazid has to mean that Jews and non-Jews are treated equivalently, and I can do it on the basis of Kant and say it's because we're both rational agents, right? And so, 
nothing other, right? No, no qualities other than humanity are allowed to play a role in this sort of decision. So I have to feel like that's true. So how do I account for halacha? Right? Isn't isn't that violated by the existence of the halacha, which says that Jews killing Jews is ritzicha, and killing right and killing non-Jews right? That's a right. That's a fair question to ask, and um, and it might be that it turns out that <coughs> thinking about it philosophically will actually help us narrow it in certain ways. We'll argue that certain certain sorts of differences between Jews and non-Jews. That if we just thought about it in terms of red or blood, we could allow. But if we right, uh, right, we we, we would well, we we would say no. We thought about it in terms of different in terms of red or blood. We could not explain why any differences exist. But if we think about red or blood as as a symbol of some kind of philosophic quality, then we can say okay, you know what? And that issue is not relevant to that quality. The punishment you get for killing somebody is not relevant to that quality. It doesn't require absolute equality. Uh, right, maybe it just requires. It's just an, it's a it's a philosophically framed thing. You can't choose among human beings in this kind of way in this kind of case. So it might open space. With that, I want to introduce one other concept from uh, constitutional law. Um, constitutional law has um, originally the notion was introduced of called strict scrutiny versus <coughs> versus, versus loose scrutiny. Are those categories are meaningful to you. So. so in right when the when the court was attempting I'm, again I'm not sure I'm right historically but let's assume I'm right right whereas it was introducing uh, you know trying trying to develop a civil rights doctrine so it argued that um, so the problem is that almost every law can be explained as having multiple reasons and if you think um, and the right and you, so you have laws that have well, almost every law will in some way have some kind of different impact on different groups. Right? But it could be that that law is just a function of people live in cities as opposed to people live in fields. It could be a function of a function of of how of whether it's of, of how, whether people are rich or poor. It could be a function of whether people are tall or short. And it also be a function of whether people are right are are you know black or white. Um, so the question is like, how do you decide what really is the since many of these criteria overlap? Right, so what? Right, so how do you decide which laws are valid, and which aren't? So they developed the notion that for certain kind of protected categories, you would subject them the law to strict scrutiny, meaning that right, there's there's a premise that a law that has disparate, disparate impact is intent right is discriminatory and is right and is a violation of equal protection. Whereas if you're dealing with if you're dealing with um, categories that aren't protected, you have, might have very loose scrutiny. Uh, right, we we're, we might say that um, right, that's called a rational basis test. As long as the legislature can show a rational, a rational, non-discriminatory basis for the law, the fact that right that it affects short and tall people differently doesn't matter, because we don't care so much about laws making a difference between short and tall people. All laws distinguish between right. So, like you know, if we have a law that you know that says that all right, all um, I don't know, I'm trying to think like where where, a law, where, where height would make a difference. Um, we make we make a law that uh, you know that the the arm of a uh, the arm the arm of something sticking over the sidewalk shall not be below six foot right seventy five inches off the ground. So that discriminates against people who are seventy right who are, who are six foot three or taller. They're going to bang their heads. But there might be right. So I say, why did you set that line? And as long as you can show a line, right? You can say that we set that line because above that it costs much much more to support right to right to right to support the way whatever it may be. So that's a rational purpose, and that's fine. 
On the other hand, right, if you had the same kind of impact on right on on a protected class, uh, with, with might be race or religion or gender, whatever the case are, right, then we would say no. You have to show me that there was no other way you could accomplish the same purpose. Okay, so general strict scrutiny means the law almost nothing survives strict scrutiny, and almost nothing is invalidated by loose scrutiny because you can always come up with a rational purpose. And under strict scrutiny, we generally be right, it's very hard to meet to meet the test. Uh, right, Sandra Day O'Connor, right, uh, famously or infamously, at some point developed intermediate scrutiny. <laughs> right, you know that there's some controversy whether that was an advance in the field. Or not, but that's part of the general, you know, big issue in halacha, whether you prefer uh, analog or digital systems, really, right? Whether you prefer systems that are, you know, that are judged, sliding scales and things like that, or you prefer very fixed points with only a certain number of outcomes. And each of them has their advantages in all sorts of cases. So I tend to think that in, right, that in, in areas that are non-ritual, distinctions, right, in, in interpersonal laws, distinctions between, um, Jews and non-Jews halakhically should be submitted to pretty darn strict scrutiny. You have to justify, right? You have to justify the right, the, the 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 differentiation and outcome, uh, right? And and if you can't justify it, then probably it shouldn't be. Okay, all those are background things. So then, uh, right? So we try to so we try to say, okay, so we have this principle of my chazid, and I'm trying to say that it would be useful to think about it um, philosophically. And philosophically, in terms of Kant specifically, because that's the formulation that, um, right, that I was taught that appealed to me and has a lot of meaning to me, and it has two frameworks. Right, one is that uh, all, right, that you have to, whatever whatever the outcome is, you think has to be true for all rational agents, and it shouldn't matter to you which position you're in. Right? Anything you think you should do towards another rational agent, you should think that rational agent should do towards you. And once you make a distinction, you're right. You're you think right, then you're not right, then you're not thinking ethically. Okay, that's one, right? And the, uh, the second is, which I think is, um, for our purposes, more powerful in some ways, is that um, one human being can't be used as a means to, right? Human beings, all human beings are ends, not means. Right, so that's a general principle in terms of you can't use a human being as an end for any purpose. Uh, and that's the challenging question I'm just starting to think about in terms of war. I have more basic. I mean, what does that mean in terms of like employee-employer relationships? Aren't you using your employees to meet a, meet a different end, such as your own profit or your own whatever, blah, 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 blah? Right, so that's a great question, right? That's a great, great, you know, can, right? On what basis, right? So the answer is the employee is, right, the employee has to be doing it for their own motives, um, right? And, right, so they would be doing it anyway. And that's, you know, that, but it's really... Um, it's really a deep violation if the I have to look, the, the question for me always is, is um, service professions. Right? So I, you know, I have grave ethical difficulty with the phenomenon of waiters. <laughs> really waiters who work for tips. And I go crazy with tipping, right? Because like, it's a person whose whole, right, whose whole framework is my happiness. All right, so why is it ethical for there to be a situation where somebody, right, where somebody's job is making me happy? Um, so you can say, look, there's some, well, you know, what about <laughs> comedians, right? The comedians want to make you happy. So there are people for whom waiting is, wait, 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 waitering or waitressing is the right job, right? Because that's what, because what gives them satisfaction is making you happy, making you satisfied, things like that. But many people, it's not, it's just the job. 
And if think of the flip side of it is, right, what's wrong with um, harassment at work? Right, harass, right, harassment at work is right. You have power over somebody, right, and so right, and so they're just you just use them as a way for your own satisfaction because you have power over them, uh, right. So we have this artificial claim, yeah, right. You know that you have to we we push you to to contract narrowly, and we push you to contract narrowly so that it goes outside the terms of the contract if you try to exercise power over people that's unrelated to the job. And sometimes that forces radical, you know, to me, like the, the test case is the decision that airline stewardesses, right, um, right would, you know, could not be defined as a job where attractiveness mattered, even though it certainly affected customer satisfaction and happiness. But we decided that it was just demeaning right, for people, right, to take a job and say, you know, but your job is not really the, the job Right, your job is to create, right, is to create some kind of erotic thrill in the uh, in the customer. So it's a really interesting test, and it's fascinating to me that it won legally. Right, that uh, right, that uh, even though you know for a while, right, you know that was part of exploiting people to advertise their service that way. Right, and so people always try to get around it. Right, you know there are certain airlines every once in a while that advertise themselves specifically and saying like it's in our contract. Right, that's how we hire people, and therefore it's not a violation because it's not a rule it's, because it's not a uh, Right, that, that, and that's all the issues people have, you know, that is less psychic and more physical in terms of, you know, whether you should legalize prostitution, uh, all issues like that. Right, so those are, right, that, those are great questions, right? I, you know, as you know, right, from last year's, I have deep trouble with the employer-employee relationship, but I think that I can root in Torah that, uh, right, that Torah prefers a society of independent contractors. Um, right, so that's, that's part of the same notion. Um, okay, so the... Um, the example I want, well, we talked about last time, and let's try and do it in more detail. Uh, this time um, was, uh, is COVID triage. But COVID triage is obviously just an example of triage per se. Right? Triage tells you are in a situation of limited resources. It's life and death. Right? So we're going to bracket all the questions of whether, um, of, you know, how this plays out in terms of th- issues less, right? So using someone's life as an ends or means or human someone happy. Right? Let's, let's make it simpler by making it life and death. Okay, I have two people, right? Let's let's think. Right, I have two people in front of me, and I have one, right? I, you know, the, they they both, you know, God forbid, right? They but they've both been they've both been bitten by the same poisonous snake, and I only have enough antidote for one of them. All right. So, what does Halacha tell me about the situation? About that situation? There are two people. There are two people. Two people in front of me, only enough antidote for one. Um, now, if one of them has the right, so now we go back. Now, so now we go. We, t- we take this story of Rebekiva, right? Two people in the desert, right? Only one. Assuming that we think that antidotes and water are the same thing, because Rav Tendler uh, is going to is going to argue that actually no, antidotes and water are not the same thing because antidotes are uh, right because he thinks the difference between natural processes, you know, things that you need to live naturally, and things that are superimposed on that. Whether that works or not is is beyond our scope right now. So as Rebekiva says, two people in the desert, one canteen of water. Um, you split it. Right, sir. Ben says you split it. Rabbi Kiva says, Okay. So two people, one of them has the antidote, gives the antidote to themselves. All right, all right. They keep the antidote, right? They keep drinking the water, take the antidote. Okay, what does Rabbi Kiva say if there are three people in the desert 
And one of them has a canteen of water, but that, that person already has a canteen of water, but he's already drunk his previous right? because it was his second canteen. He already drank the first canteen. So he's like, right? There are two, there are two, but he has two people in front of him. And the canteen, only, well, the canteen only let one of them survive long enough to get back to civilization. What is that person supposed to do with the canteen? Based on, the, right, all we have is, all we have is this brighter. The brighter says that, that originally, originally Bepetora said they should split the water and then, um, and then Rebekiva came along and said, your life comes first. So what should the outcome be? Cases. Three people. Three people. One. one canteen of water. The person who has the canteen will survive no matter what. Doesn't need to drink anything. Has to figure out right what to do with the what right what to do with the canteen with the other two people. So thinking halachically, we could say, well, he should go to the mission Horios. <laughs> right. That would right. That would be one thing to do. Right. Go to the mission Horios. Happily, very, 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 very few people ever suggest that. <laughs> uh, okay, what's the next po- The next possibility is, well, let's look at the logic of the Gemara. Ben Pesora says, split it. Rabbi Kiva says, but I have a Pasuk. The Pasuk says that I come, that you, right, that I come first. So if it's not me, then I don't have the Pasuk anymore. So now I go back to, right, to splitting it. So the right thing to do is for the, uh, for the person to give, right, to give it to each of them, right, the person should just right just put it down in the middle, and um, right and um, you know and let or or pour out pour out a cup to each of them and then right and we go back to splitting it. Okay, that is a um, right, that's a reasonable outcome. Second possibility is that um, the the case in the Gemara is not talking about a it's, it's talking about a case only where one person already has the water, so that person can keep it. it doesn't tell you anything about what third party should do. Um, right, or right, it could be they should fight it out. It could be we should flip a coin. All sorts of things are uh, are possible. What I wanted to point out, though, was which is not you know not my chiddush, which is how does Ben Pesora reach the conclusion that they should split it? Right, of all these options, why does Ben Pesora think they should split it? Why doesn't he think they should they should fight for it? Why doesn't he think they should flip a coin? So Rechaim Soloveitchik argues that actually Ben Pesora thinks they should each keep giving it, they should keep giving it to each other. Uh, right, because each of them has an obligation, each, each of them, Ben Pesora doesn't understand, doesn't have the drasha, so he is just taking the principle you can't say your blood is redder than the other person's. You can't say your blood is redder than the other person's, right, then what that means is you should give it to the other person. Now that assumes that you can say the other person's blood, right? That the other, or that the other person's blood is red. Or alternatively, you can, right? Let's, let's let's leave it that way, okay? But, um, so, right? So Chaim thinks the outcome of the svara is really that both of them should die. If you want to nitpick, yeah, handing it back and forth though, means neither of them drinks. But he clearly says Yishtushneham. Oh, but Bezorah said the outcome is they split it. Right. right, but Rechaim says is that that he doesn't understand why that's true, right? Because right? he says if what what we should think about Ben Pesora is Ben Pesora has the svara, Ben Pesora, whichever it is, right? 
uh, right, Torah, I think, in that episode, right? right? But that's as it. far as saying I'm going to sacrifice myself for you, how do you not, uh, break the infinite loop where they're just not that's right. back and forth? That's exactly right. So, right, so that's the problem, Rav Chaim says, is we have to figure out what, what is Bar, bar Petorah, what is it, Petorah, I shouldn't say, I'm going to stop Petorah, Petorah is where Bilam comes from, uh, right, the Petorah, right, and the, and the people who make fun of Bar Petorah would think that the word Petorah being a, is a big deal. Um, so how does he get out of that loop, right? Why, right, why, do, why does, why do either of them get to drink, get to drink half of it, since by any, any amount you drink means the other person dies, Right. I mean, aside from like the technical problems of whether you have to drink simultaneously or not, <laughs> right? That's a uh, right. That's a separate problem. So Rav Chaim argued, if I understand it correctly, that but that would be ridiculous. Nobody thinks the best outcome is for both people to die, even though it follows logically from the svara. So we have an outcome that is. Ethically consistent with the svara, in a sense, but is not a, um, but it doesn't follow from the svara unless you put an additional assumption, which is we're not going to do things that cause more, right? That cause everyone to die. That's just ridiculous. Okay, there are other kinds of questions like that which come up with the Gemara, which I, Gemara says, um, right, that if they if the, if uh, they besiege a city and they say. Give us right, and they say, "Give us any one of you, so you can't, um, right? So you can't, right? So you can't give, you can't give them, you know, that you can't give them any one of you." What if they specify a single person, and that person is not, right? That person is, is there's nothing special about the person. Um, the right, the question, the, the question that the people ask is, what happens if, um, what happens if? We either given this person or all of us actually die. So we really are we really going to end up in a situation where we're going to let everybody die rather than let one person die. Is that really a rational outcome? Let the whole city die rather than give up one person. So I can say formally you can't decide which person. But the outcome seems absurd. Everyone dies. Right? All, right? So all, we have all those sorts of questions like that. Okay. So now we take it back to um, back to triage. Right? So let's say we're, we're trying to move uh, we're trying to move from Rabbi Akiva, but then we realize is that there's an easy way to get rid of Rabbi Akiva. The easy way to get rid of Akiva is just to, to say it's not between the two people directly, it's about a third party. Right, so now we're back in Svara world. Right, I'm a doctor. I, have, right, I'm, right, uh, right, I possess the antidote. There are two people in front of me. So what is, this, what is the Svara supposed to do? So I could say, okay, you know what? I'm going to inject each person with half the anecdote, with half with half the antidote. Okay, right. That's a right. That's a perfect. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Each person gets half the antidote. Except here's the thing: drinking half the canteen gets um, right gets everybody chayesha. You gain something. Half the antidote does nothing. Both people die at exactly the same right, exactly as 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 uh, as soon as they would have otherwise. Does it make a difference if it's literally zero impact? Yeah, let's say zero. Versus 30 minutes? Yeah, let's, I'm going to a case. It's literally zero. It's literally zero. So in that case, right, the outcome is absurd. Right, right. In the, in the end, in the end, Barpatura, right, in the end, Barpatura takes the non-absurd results. 
But here we have no, here splitting it is not splitting it is not the is not is not the non-absurd result. Splitting it is the absurd result. It yields the same thing, they both die. So maybe in that case we flip a coin. Just yeah. kind of coming in from left field, is there ever a situation where Halacha explicitly says flip a coin? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, so that's that yeah, so there's a mamanos sometimes we seem to right, we seem to have an idea of flip a coin. I don't know offhand uh, in Halacha, another place <laughs> where you say flip in monetary cases, if they if they don't have a clear right, that's what everybody says. Right? They will actually so, give it to one as opposed to split it. <coughs> you say in those we have five different kinds of results, right? We have we have we have yachlo, we have yachloku, yachloku bishvua, uh, right? We have uh, called aling var, right? Everybody everybody should just fight it out. Uh, we have shuda daini, which is give it to whoever the judges want, which might be flipping a coin mm-hmm. or it might be right. And we have yehimun lachashiyo putting it in escrow. Right, it's obviously you know we could spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the criteria is under which we apply each of those five, uh, those five solutions, and then we could modify you know shuda in each of those categories that we have six solutions, uh, right? So, but maybe shuda, maybe shuda is one of those. I don't, I don't know another place where we just um, where we just flip a coin. It's a really interesting question. Uh, aside from the place, of course, we do lotteries. Hey, we do right, we do have things for which we do, do for which we do lotteries. So that's the solution for some of the kohanim things, right? That we impose a we impose, we impose a piece. Um, is that a precedent for this kind of case? I mean, maybe. I want to move, the, but that's just an example, right? So now, but there are other, there are other, there are other non-substantive rules you can use to allocate scarce resources, other than splitting, right? Right. So one of the easiest of them is whoever comes in first. And so one of the ways of handling triage is to say, right, and, this, and that is, in fact, the way um, that most post-kim, I believe, handled penicillin when, right, early, early in the penicillin era, is to say that, you have, right, that doctors have to give the, shots to, the shot to whomever comes first. As opposed to say, right, we know, we'll hold it for, right, we'll, we'll hold it for, because we know there are going to be numbers of patients. And now you can... Use that in a way which doesn't, right, which isn't, which doesn't seem like just a solution to absurdity by saying, because we have an immediate obligation to this person, and you have no, and the other people are purely hypothetical. Well, what happens yeah. with something like triage if you're on a ventilator where it's an ongoing usage of resources? Absolutely right. You know, Absolutely right. So that right, evaluate, that doesn't help you, right? So that assumes, right, the the cost of this is right. The you know the 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 place where you have to behave in a way which doesn't maximize resources is if the person who comes in. Uh, right, is right doesn't right is less likely to survive than the person who comes in later. Right, that's it. Right, right, or needs a larger dose. Right, than the average person. Right, all sorts of things like that. Right, that's where those come. Right, say you can think of these. Right, like the, there's a philosophic problem, which is you can't say one person's life is greater than the other, and therefore I can't. I have no way of allocating scarce resources, scarce resources of life, among different people. So I have to come up with some criteria that avoids the absurd results of my being unable to make a decision. Yes, sir. But who comes in first isn't random either. Who comes in first depends on who lives closer to where the ambulances park. Yeah. It depends on who has access to a better cell phone plan. And for that matter, who has access to a better cell phone. 
and for that matter, who has better charging apparatus. And in the end, it's still going to privilege the sure. same people that you don't want Good. to privilege. Right, so this gets into the question we had before about to what extent do we impose strict scrutiny? And say, right, that if the, right, say when we evaluate whether we have successfully <coughs> found a way of avoiding the absurdity and at the same time satisfying our ethical, our ethical criteria, like a splitting it, satisfying our ethical criteria, we didn't say one person's blood is rather than another. Right? So you say, right, so you might say, well, what happens if it turns out, right? If it if it turns out, like we could we could problemize that, like what happens if, you know, what happens if there are two people and there's one canteen of water, but one person we know. Right, um, right, evaporates water very rapidly, so they will live less long. Right, then the other person do I have to make it proportional? Right, otherwise, right, you end up with a system that privileges that right that privileges people with better water storage. Right, every every apparently arbitrary solution will have disparate impact on some group or another. But that's the the allocating penicillin or, or ventilators by who gets there first isn't. Preferential treatment for people who happen to do better with penicillin or ventilators is preferential treatment for rich people. Good. So you're saying that wealth is a subject, is a criteria which we apply strict scrutiny. So wealth is a criteria which we apply strict scrutiny. And right, and water evaporation rate is something to which we apply loose scrutiny. Right? That, right? That's what you're coming up with, right? That's that's what you're coming up with that kind of test, right? That's why right, that's why I use I use that category. My, so it might be the halacha cares very much. <laughs> About right about wealth disparities, or it might be Allah doesn't care about wealth disparities at all. Okay, so rich people, right? So rich people are more likely to get to get right to get it. Who cares? That's just an accident. It's not our intent. If it happened that all that all the doses, right, all all the doses that all the remaining doses were in a hospital in the poorest area of the city, um, right, that would be fine too, right? But that's that's you you don't like it. Okay, I'm just that 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 putting in additional criteria. Because the rich people have been organizing society for the last hundred years to maximize their chances okay, of getting into an Okay, again, you think that wealth. It's not, it's you, not you, at all random. It was done on Okay, good. So therefore you think. Extent. And therefore you think that wealth is a. Uh, right, that wealth, that wealth is a criteria that should be subjected to much stricter scrutiny. Right? That's right. That's, that's, a, that's a fair. But I think the Jote is being this Okay, right again. That's all. I'd say the same thing over and over again, right? That's therefore you think that wealth should be subjected to uh, subjected to strict, to strict scrutiny. But we can think of other things where, right? You know, rather figure out. Do you think the same thing? If we could find a way in which the disparity went the other way around, or a society in which the disparity went the other way around, um, let's say because the right, it happens that the right, that rich people uh, all live in the, all, all assume that they can get to the hospital by car. But something has happened that makes it impossible to get there by car. Do we have to right? Do we have to wait till they walk from further away? Right, right. Again, I just play that. Okay. The um, okay. So the right. So what I, what I wanted to argue, and this I didn't do last time, so I'm going to try to introduce this now. Um, Rabbi Bleich, in his treatment of uh, of embryonic editing, which is going to be one of the one of the issues that we're going to try and talk about going on, because embryonic editing. Or right or eugenics, right? Is uh, right. The question is: Does this criteria, this claim that we have that we can't say whose blood is redder than, than one person's blood is redder than another, apply even to potential people? Right? Is that right? Because by claiming that this right by claiming that 
we prefer to bring a person with this characteristic into the world than a person with that characteristic in the world. We're implicitly saying that people with this characteristic have redder blood than people with that characteristic. Right? That's right. That's a way of objecting. That's one of the ways we object to eugenics. Right? And this is going on now, right? You know, in the question of whether, right, of the you know, of Down syndrome and other right, all sorts of other genetic things that are. Um, right, that because that you know, where we tend to <laughs> diagnosis tends to lead to abortion. <coughs> Hold in the context of that discussion, which we will talk about next week. Um, right, life comes up with uh, an argument which is worth examining on its own terms whether or not it's the right way to deal with the eugenics question. What he says is that there's a philosophic position, famously you know, in the Jewish tradition, it's articulated by Ramban. Which thinks that medicine is bedevit. Because really, medicine is playing God. God chose to make somebody ill. What are you doing healing them? Right? That, right? If God wanted them to be healed, right, why would he make them ill? Okay, maybe God made them ill. Right? You understand we can end up endless cycles, endless cycles that way. But Black says that maybe there is an exception to an implicit natural there is a natural law principle that human beings should not play God. Which again, if that's him, whereas you know, if you're in the rough world, you might say, no, the natural presumption is human beings should play God. And we need, we need something that says that you shouldn't, because that's why he created us with Selma Lakim, right? Right. So you, have, you can have a, a totally different universe, which is the rough universe in which we celebrate human beings being like God. Right? Bleich, Lichitaso sets up a presumption that you're not supposed to be like God, and it takes a matir to make you right to, to let you to let you play God. And what he argues is that the matir is limited to things that can be called refua. Whereas th- things that, right, try- attempting to make people superhuman, it, right, is not in the, right, you are not allowed to make them, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to, um, to, right, to try to make people superhuman. That's a, right, that is playing God. It doesn't fall into the category of medicine. Right? All such attempts are going to be philosophically extremely complicated. This thing what makes you superhuman as opposed to fulfilling your potential as human. Anything you can do, obviously, fulfills someone's potential as human, right? All sorts of things are dealing like that. And you have to figure out if you're willing to accept that standard. I'll give you, you know, another way which you know, the way philosophy plays out. Rav Moshe takes the position that tamim means that you're not supposed to do things that like that guard against future consequences. That's supposed to be prudent, really. You're not, really not really supposed to. You know, you're supposed to live. The question, many. What's an example? Buying life insurance. Should not buy life right, there was a whole halachic position that people should not buy life. There actually are whole in, right, there are, there are areas of um, there are Christian sects that have their own uh, insurance schemes that way. So they think that insurance, right? And this was a avin halacha that insurance should be usher. Well, is it because of because of the reason that you should not? It's a violation of tamim tiyam right? You're not you're not trusting God, <laughs> right? You're playing the odds about the fear if you're not right, you're not leaving it to trust. So Ramosha has this position, and he uses it to object to genetic testing. Because he thinks that procreation is the kind of thing that should be engaged in with faith. And you shouldn't be attempting to control. But not Tay-Sachs testing. Because Tay-Sachs testing, he says, that would be the equivalent of telling people that they should dafka walk like this on a, right, on a street. So, right, and have trust that they won't fall into pits. Because of the certainty of saying it's because 
<laughs> at some point. Are there, are there no other conditions where you'd have a certain fee of, of the condition? There was very little if, else you could do genetic testing for. At that time, right. How he writes it. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not in any way advancing his position, as right. I think it's worth mentioning saying that they have an idea where somebody you know, has a philosophic principle, but the philosophic principle hits like it's just an absurdity wall, right? And, you know, it, it crashes, and then maybe at some point it turns out the absurdity wall is everywhere, and we have to rethink whether the position is viable or not. Um, right? So, we have, right? so we're, on, we're in that position everywhere on, 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 a, lot of, on a lot of issues. Um, okay, so Bleich right, tries to make this distinction. Whether it's valid in that context or not, we can talk in great length another point. Uh, that we should distinguish between that, it, that when it says, right, when he says, and the Gemara says that means that we give permission to doctors to heal, that means there's something unique about the medical profession, the medical intervention halachically. Right, that, that the medical medical halachically is different than other kinds right, other kinds of decisions, and it functions as an exemption from right from right from certain kinds of rules. So I wanted to try and take that one step further. And I wanted to argue that in the context of triage, the issue is right. You're never allowed right. You have two ways of thinking about the same thing. Right. So I have I have a medicine, at, right. I have a medicine. I can give it to you. And there's a you know, like the A and B. Right? I can give it to A, and there's a 60% chance that it will heal A. Or I can give it to B, and there's a 40% chance it will heal, it will heal B. I only have one dose. So that could be saying, I could view that as A's blood is better than B. Or I could view it as I am using the medical supply as efficiently as I can. But there's going to be a third thing that's going to bother this. What happens if I can give it to... I, I can give it to A, and it, I, A and B have the same chance of being cured, but B has a much greater chance of dying within a year afterwards anyway because B is a heavy smoker. So, right, so, how, do I, so how, do I, how do I view these cases halakhically? So I want to argue, I did argue, right, so I argued that, um, that as long as you're making the criteria purely on the efficacy uh, right, the way in which the medicine interacts with the body, then you're in that realm of right, right, of that also means that doctors have the right to uh, right to apportion to allocate limited supplies in the way which is most medicinally effective, but they can't do that in any way which allows in criteria other than medical efficacy because that would be a violation of my chazit. And therefore, right, if it will, if it's more likely to heal the patient, then you can, for example, transfer right, transfer the ventilator from one patient to another, so long as that is not considered an action of murder, right? And then we have a whole separate question of it, right? How long after the death, after the removal of the ventilator, does the patient have to die, right? The patient, right? The, all those are all sorts of criteria. But if the right, assuming that we can solve all the other technical problems, right, of what constitutes what constitutes death, and not we're where we're in the realm, we're just talking about competing chiyav hatzalos. So then I want to argue that as long as the decision is made purely on the criteria about the relation, the way in which this ventilator will affect this, will affect this patient, that's legitimate. If you talk about, right, right if, once you start talking about how long the patient will live, not because of this, now you're already illegitimate because now you're saying, okay, right, three years of this person's life is more important than Right, than five years of that person's life. Now that 
I mentioned the right there was at least a havamina in the uh, you know the, at least right that there was a tshuva of that could have been understood as saying that we take age, that age is also a criteria, and I objected that very strongly, and he withdrew it or never said it um, because there seems to be a consensus now, although you can see people disagreeing that how long a person will live is not right is not a criteria is not a medical criterion right that doctors are allowed to think about. And so that was a way of trying to introduce my chazit thought about philosophically, right into the right into in, into the um, in, right into 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 the halachic realm that you read right, that if you're just a doctor thinking about right wh- how will the effectiveness of this medication be right be maximized, <laughs> then you're allowed then then you're allowed then you're allowed to think that way. If you're thinking about well which lives right which way will I preserve the most life, that's not okay anymore. Because now you're deciding that some lives are more valuable than others. And Kalachomer, you can't talk about, right, you know, I'll save that person because that person has more value to society, right? That would obviously, that would obvious, that would obviously be us, And there are all sorts of interesting test cases, like what happens if I'm giving it, you know, I'm giving it as a to first responders first because that motivates them. And that ends up right that right, you know, as opposed to right, not because not because it's they're more valuable, but because Overall, it will increase. The, right, the, right. Those are those are the really hard tests. I want to give that. That was the model I wanted to use of how thinking philosophically about halacha lets you yield results that you couldn't write that you might not right. Because we, you know, I was saying, look, first of all, we have to realize that our goal is to avoid an absurd result. We're not just thinking formally. Right, we're not willing to end up with a result which says you can't do anything. Even though, if we're just thinking formally, halacha, okay, something halacha says you can't right, you can't do anything. Tough. No, you can't do that. Right, because we're thinking ethically. Ethically, right, right? How could it be that you end up with a result that's worse than any of that's worse than even a random choice? If the result were worse than a random, right, were worse than a random choice, we would pick the random choice, just like we pick splitting it. And then, secondly, saying, okay, right, we, that we found a way to think about the decision right, in a way that doesn't violate the ethical principle. In practice, of course, we're picking one life, right? We are, right, we are. Right, we are we are pick, we are giving the medicine to this person over that person, on a non-random basis. So if you just thought about it formally, you couldn't do it. But if you think about it philosophically, now you have, right now you have, right now now you have a way to do it. So that was my argument, Dafka, in terms of, in terms of, um, in terms of, of of ventilator triage, that if you weren't killing the patient, you could even you could even, right, if a patient walked in and. Might be helped slightly, you know. There was a slight chance of being helped, or might be helped slightly. You could give them the ventilator, and you didn't have to think that as a result you would not be able to transfer it when a patient needed it more came in later. Now there was understanding of Moshe that you couldn't do that at all, because Moshe claimed that the person developed a right to the medication. Right, you had, you had to give it to the person who came in first, and you had to, and the person developed the right to the medication. And there was another think, way of thinking, which uh, was that we will radically expand the notion of what it means for patients to come in at different times. That we'll think of, you know what, we're not thinking of, the patient who comes in is not coming independently, they're coming in as part of the class of patients which we reasonably expect over the, right over the next 12 hours. All right, and we're going to think about those, all those patients in some kind of arbitrarily determined period. Or we think of all those patients that might be, right, you know, and that, that uh, see, we have here, I guess here's what my claim, right, and that's where I probably will finish, right, here's my claim. There are certain kinds of ethical intuitions that are very widely shared among Boskin. And therefore, when you, when you find 
lots of poskim coming up with radically different ways to get to the same result, then you should acknowledge that what they're doing is right, they're trying to square the halacha with some kind of, with, with an ethical intuition. That ethical intuition can be case-based, like this can't be the outcome in that case, or it can be principally-based. Usually, the way post can frame it is case-based, and what I'm doing, which is perhaps somewhat different, is making it principle-based. Uh, in this particular case of triage, I'm arguing that my principle-based framework gets you the results you want in a comprehensible and predictable way in the, right, in the cases. It provides a way of explaining what you should do, Predictably and and help and helpfully and if that's true right if it if right if I come with a principle that conforms to halacha and right makes right has outcomes that make sense um, and the way it does that is by understanding halacha as articulating a philosophic principle so then maybe that means that the that the that the articulation of halacha is correct and therefore even in cases where it, it might not obviously, right, right, it might not obviously yield the result that is intuitive. We can say, oh, look, but that's the right principle. Uh, okay, so that's, that's the, the first case. I think that, you know, that, that, I think it illustrates, um, it, il it illustrates it, but it's, I should say, we should put it right, that it's, I, it's not a deep philosophic articulation, right? What it is is a, a claim. What it means is you can't prefer one life to another. Right? It isn't really Kantian yet. It doesn't, right? it doesn't use the categories ends and means. Right? It just says you can't prefer one life to another. Right? That's the philosophic principle working with. And right? and that, but it's, it's a philosophic principle, so it doesn't stop you from preferring one life to another as long as you're not making a claim that one life is more valuable than another. Right? So that's, that's the philosophic articulation, is that it, it, it takes the prioritization in the practical realm and moves it in, into prioritization in the value realm. Um, what I'll try to do next week, if we have to figure out if anybody can, you know, what, what kind of condition everyone's in after the rally, um, is um, try to come up with, and uh, brain death, I think, is the right context, you know, the context where the language of ends and means actually helps make an enormous difference. Uh, and then we'll try and move into, uh, into cases where, uh, so one case we already talked about, right, how this helps us deal with eugenics and other models like eugenics we're dealing with potential life and does it help you provide a criteria otherwise we have nothing to say perhaps and alternatively uh and and, and i also i've also used it in arguments about us about whether uh, a state can uh, permit or ought to permit a um, medically assisted suicide uh, right so we'll try and fill that out as well okay thank you so much um, Okay.